Lord, in your great grace and in your love toward us, you have given us the Bible, which we believe is breathed out, has been breathed out by you, that is useful, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Lord, we believe that this word is indeed sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Lord God, we pray this morning that your spirit would come and show us more of your magnificence, more of your greatness, more of your love, more of your faithfulness. And then, Lord, that we would take this word into our week uh, with more assurance, Lord, that you are indeed the Lord of all history, the Lord of our lives, the Lord who is returning, the Lord who has history in the palm of your hand, and you know exactly what you are doing. Thank you, Lord, for being such a great and magnificent and faithful God. Help us now, Lord, as we open your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I want to start by asking you to imagine with me a single-celled organism. We're going to get scientific here for a minute. A single-celled organism with no brain, no nervous system, and it congregates with other fellow single-celled brainless organisms. And then as a group, it travels, it navigates its way to a food source. Again, without any brains at work here. It chooses the best route available to the food source. And, and imagine also that this single-celled brainless group then chooses the best food to eat if presented with a choice of food. Now, it's hard for us even to imagine such a thing, and yet it exists in our world. It's called slime mold. Not a very flattering title, but there it is, slime mold. Well, there's an entomologist named Tanya Latte in Australia who studies this stuff, and she says she finds it fascinating that slime mold can do anything at all, since it has no brain. Scientists remain baffled at the characteristics and the qualities of this stuff. They simply can't figure it out. Well, friends, admittedly, I felt a little like one of those scientists <laughs> this past week as I was studying both this morning's sermon text and next week's. These final verses of Daniel 9 are frankly hard to figure out. They are baffling in some respects. And, and the literature that has been written on these verses demonstrates that fact. There have been a whole host of different interpretations, different takes on what this passage means, and those different takes have come from a variety, a whole variety of different people, all of whom we should note very carefully love the Lord. And so I invite us all to approach this passage over this week and next week 
with humility and also with sympathy toward those who might come to different conclusions than we might come to. The first four verses of this section are, are relatively trouble-free. So verses 20 through 23, these are fairly easy to understand, these, these verses. So just a quick refresher. Remember from our time in Daniel two weeks ago now, that Daniel had been praying, hadn't he? He'd been praying that great prayer of confession before the Lord. Daniel, looking at the book of Jeremiah as he had been, saw that Israel's 70-year exile was about to end. And Daniel had been convicted, hadn't he, that the reason that the exile had happened in the first place, that the reason that Israel had been ripped out of their land and sent to Babylon was because they had broken covenant with God. They had rebelled, they had transgressed God's law, and Daniel had been praying in confession to the Lord. And so this morning we pick things up at verses 20 and 21. Daniel says, while I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, now notice, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now friends, here is a tremendous encouragement to us. I want you to see this. Daniel has been praying to God with fasting, yes, with sackcloth and ashes. Uh, that's verse three. Daniel has been genuinely, genuinely heartbroken, genuinely contrite over his sin and the sin at, of his countrymen. And even as Daniel sits there in that very penitent posture, the angel Gabriel, notice, comes swiftly to Daniel with a word from God. Daniel had just finished praying in verse 19, Lord, don't delay, he had said. And now here comes God's angel in swift flight to attend to Daniel. And the encouragement for us here, I think, is very well articulated by Brian Chapel, who says this, quote, the simple message is that God is attentive to the cry of his people, amen, and he does not delay his care for those who turn to him, even if there is sin in and about them. Yes, indeed, my friends, praise be to our great and gracious God who attends us in our sackcloth and ashes. Amen? But I want you to notice also here something further that I think is just very, very sweet. Notice how Daniel marks time. 
He says that it was at the, at the time of the evening sacrifice that Gabriel had flown to him so swiftly, at the time of the evening sacrifice. Now the thing is, Daniel had not been in Jerusalem to attend the evening sacrifice at the temple for 70 whole years. In fact, the temple in Jerusalem where evening sacrifices had once been offered had been laying in ruins at this point for many decades. And yet here's the elderly man, Daniel, in Daniel 9.21, marking time, marking his calendar by the evening sacrifice. Well, what does this tell us? I think Dale Davis is right on point here when he says that what Daniel's marking of time by the evening sacrifice shows us is that for all those 70 years in Babylon, Daniel's heart had been yearning. His soul had been thirsting for the means of grace that he had known in Jerusalem during his formative years. I'll read you the quote, the full quote from Davis. He says this, that the time indicator here is packed with years of yearning and longing and affection for Yahweh's ordinances, a passion for the means of grace of true Jerusalem worship. And then Davis concludes by saying this, sometimes what may seem incidental reveals a soul thirsting after God. Beautiful stuff. Well, let's move forward now to verses 22 and 23. Daniel says, he, Who's he talking about? He's talking about the angel Gabriel. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved." Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Notice, friends, how the angel Gabriel here stresses his concern that Daniel understand what Daniel is about to be told. But notice also the messaging, hopefully you noticed, the messaging that God sends to Daniel through Gabriel. Daniel is sitting there in sackcloth and ashes, remember, he's Sorry, he's repentant over his sin and the sin of his people. And God wants Daniel to know, you are greatly loved. Now, isn't that just delicious and beautiful and kind of God? You are greatly loved, sinner. Oh, friends, how rich is the grace and the mercy of our God. You, with sackcloth and ashes, penitent and repentant, you are greatly loved. 
beautiful. And another amazing thing here is this, that Gabriel tells Daniel that, notice, at the beginning of his prayer, notice this, at the beginning of his prayer, at the beginning of Daniel's pleas for mercy, God sent out a word for Daniel. And Gabriel is there now to voice that word to Daniel. But the the point is, listen, God didn't have to wait for Daniel to get through his entire prayer. (laughs) Yes? God sent out a word for Daniel at the start of Daniel's prayer. And this, of course, reminds us, doesn't it, of Isaiah 65, 24, where God says this, Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Did you hear that? Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. My friends, our God can send out answers to our prayers before we even get the first words out. Now, the word that God gives to Daniel through Gabriel begins in verse 24. So hang on to your seats. Now begins the more difficult part of the passage uh, that we will also be looking at next Sunday. But today our final verse, in fact, is this verse, verse 24. Now for starters here, we can say this that it's crucial for us to bear in mind here the context in which these next four verses are set. The context. As we've said already, the man Daniel is conscious of the fact, conscious of the fact that the 70-year exile out of the land is now ending. And he's just prayed that long prayer of confession over the sins of Israel that landed them in the exile in the first place. And the question that the next verses will address is this important question. I want you to hear this. Does Israel's return to their land after 70 years in Babylon actually mark the end of their exile? Or is the return to the land only the first stage of the end of their exile? Once more, does Israel's return to their land after 70 years in Babylon actually mark the end of their exile, or is the return to the land only the first stage of of the end to their exile? And the answer is, that Israel's return to their land is only the first stage of a two-stage end of their exile. Being back in their land after 70 years in Babylon was an important first stage, and it had indeed been prophesied by Jeremiah, but there would be a second stage a second stage of return, a stage that would take far longer than merely 70 years. And this second stage of return from exile had been prophesied extensively by the prophet Isaiah. 
It was the stage, the second stage, where the hearts, listen, the hearts of God's covenant-breaking people would be restored to God Himself. So this second stage of return from exile would involve the putting right, the putting right of the covenant relationship between faithless people and their faithful God. It would involve a final and full forgiveness provided by God for the people's sin. And this second stage of return and restoration, as we've said, would take far longer than just 70 years. Well, with that as a sort of warm-up, let's go now to verse 24, where the angel Gabriel starts talking about, what's he talking about? He starts talking about the second stage of return from exile. He says to Daniel, 70 weeks, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to do what? To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Now, again, as fair warning, (laughs) these next four verses that close out Daniel 9 are not easy, especially before lunch. But we'll try to do our best uh, this week and next week. So first of all, track with me here, friends. First of all, notice the phrase, 70 weeks. Now, in the original Hebrew text, that phrase literally reads 70 sevens. 70 sevens. And a single seven is understood here as a seven-year period. A seven-year period. So then, doing the math, 70 times seven years equals 490. You with me so far? 490 years. Gabriel is telling Daniel here that all those actions that are outlined in verse 24, finishing the transgression, putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, and so on and so forth, all those actions will take 490 years to complete. Where the first stage of return from exile had taken 70 years, The second stage of return and restoration will take 490 years. Now, there's something quite obvious here, quite obvious, if we have been reading the book of Leviticus. Anybody been reading the book of Leviticus this week? I have a little bit in preparation for this. Um, It's not a book that we normally go to, but it's a great book. It should be read. Something obvious if we've been reading Leviticus, and that is that the numbers Gabriel gives here, seven, and then the 70 times seven number, 490, these are what we might call sabbatical numbers. So in Leviticus 25, God laid out for Israel laws 
concerning the Sabbath year. The Sabbath year. And it went like this. Once Israel entered the land of Canaan and settled there, God said that the land could be worked for six years. But on the seventh year, the land was to be given a Sabbath. No sowing, no reaping was to happen on the land during that entire seventh year. And further to that, God went on in that same 25th chapter of Leviticus, he went on to command that every seven sevens, that is, every 49 years, a trumpet was to sound on the Day of Atonement, consecrating the following year, the 50th year, as a year of Jubilee, yes. And the year of Jubilee, after seven sevens, had elapsed, after 49 years had elapsed, the Jubilee was a year of what? Of release, a year of liberty, a year of redemption. Property was to be given back to its original owner. Debt slaves were to be released with all debts canceled and forgiven. And once again, friends, the land was to lie fallow in the Jubilee year. No reaping, no sowing, no gathering. Sam Storms says this. The Jubilee, describing the Jubilee, the Jubilee was a year in which social justice and equity, freedom, pardon, release, and restoration were emphasized and experienced. The Jubilee signaled a new beginning, the inauguration of moral, spiritual, and national renewal. And then Storms says this, which I think is very important. He says, hence it is no surprise that the Jubilee became a symbol and prefigurement of the ultimate redemption, release, and restoration that God would accomplish spiritually on behalf of his people. One more time. Hence, it is no surprise that the Jubilee became a symbol and prefigurement of the ultimate redemption, release, and restoration that God would accomplish spiritually on behalf of his people. My friends, it is certainly no accident whatsoever that the angel Gabriel gives Daniel this specific word from God about 70 sevens, 490 years. Clearly, these numbers reflect the Sabbath and Jubilee principle of Leviticus 25. 490 years is what? 10 Jubilee periods. 10 Jubilee eras. And this is not accidental. 70 sevens or 70 weeks is indeed sabbatical language. And consider this fact also, as we just said, 490 years is 10 Jubilee eras of 49 years apiece. 
So then the second stage of return from exile would take 10 Jubilee eras to complete. And the first stage of return from exile, the stage that lasted 70 years in Babylon, took 10 land sabbaticals to complete. One land sabbatical happening every seven years. And in fact, way back in Leviticus 26, listen, God had connected Israel's coming exile, the exile that was going to come for them, he connected it with land sabbaticals. He prophesied in Leviticus 26, 43, that when Israel's exile came, the land would be abandoned by them and would enjoy its Sabbaths while it lay desolate without them. Yes, the land enjoyed 10 Sabbaths over 70 years while Israel was exiled in Babylon. And now... The second stage of return would also feature the number 10. 10 jubilee eras of 49 years apiece. So there's a lot going on (laughs) biblically and theologically with these numbers. And we are wise to read this 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel uh, Daniel 9 through the revelation that God gave in Leviticus concerning the Sabbath and the Jubilee. More on that a little bit later. But as verse 24 continues, notice, we have these six actions. Six actions that will be completed within this 490, 10 Jubilee period. So let's walk through each of these six actions slowly. Now the first is, to finish the transgression, or to finish the rebellion. The people's rebellion against God had to end. They needed forgiveness, they needed covenant renewal, and what was at stake, of course, what was at stake was the purpose that they held in the grand design of God. Their purpose was what? to bring blessing to the nations. And how could they bless the nations if their rebellion were to continue to finish the transgression? And then the second related action to be completed in the 490 year period was to put an end to sin, or literally to seal up sin, to seal up sin. You know, sometimes when you have a garbage that has maybe been lying around a little too long, it starts to smell very putrid, right? Probably we've all had this experience. And so you double bag it, perhaps even triple bag it, and you tie the top as tightly as you can to try to keep that smell in the bag. And then you throw the the bag outside (laughs) in your trash can uh, to be remembered no more, right? And this is the image here in our verse. Israel's putrid sin against God will be sealed up and thrown out. Just as the man Job in Job 14 verse 17 
had imagined a time when his transgression would be sealed up in a bag. Job 14, 17. So it would be for God's people within this 490-year second stage of return from exile. Their sin would be ended. Their sin would be sealed up and thrown out. And then the third related action here is what? To atone for iniquity. So featured in the 70 weeks of years would be an atonement for iniquity. An atoning sacrifice of some kind would be made pleasing to God that would atone for the people's iniquity. This would be an atonement that would remove their punishment for their sinful behavior. And we have to wonder from our new covenant perspective, does this atonement in the 70 weeks maybe have something to do with that Nazarene named Jesus? Fourth here in the 70 weeks is the bringing in of everlasting righteousness. And again, we have our new covenant lenses on as readers of the Bible. We have to wonder, is there a connection here in Daniel 9 with a time future that would come? A time that the Apostle Paul would describe in Romans 5.21 where, listen, grace reigns through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Fifth here in Daniel 9.24, fifth in the 70 weeks of years, is the sealing up, the sealing up of both vision and profit. Now in our day, when you go to the Hotel de Ville, the city office, and you pay a bill, Sometimes they will stamp that, the, the receipt, right, before they give it back to you. And the stamp means what? Paid in full, right? The transaction has been completed, and you have proof of that. Well, in ancient times, often a seal would be affixed to an official document, indicating something very similar to that. The transaction has now been completed. When Gabriel talks here about vision and prophet being sealed, most likely he's talking about a time that would come when the old covenant would be completed, sealed, finished, when all the purposes, all the objectives of the old covenant era would be finished and vindicated. And we can't help thinking again here with new covenant lenses on, we can't help thinking of verses like Hebrews 1.1 and Hebrews 1.2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us how? By his Son. In other words, the prophets from Moses on through the entire Old Covenant era, they were necessary, 
Yes, they had a definite, God-given, very important purpose, which was to speak to our ancestors, according to Hebrews 1, to speak to our ancestors at many different times and in many different ways. But now, those transactions being complete, vision and profit being sealed, God now speaks to us by His Son. His Son in whom all the promises of God receive their yes and their amen. 2 Corinthians 1.20 Well, sixth and finally here, friends. In verse 24 is this action of anointing a most holy place. And this too, according to our text, would happen within the 70 weeks. Now, the original Hebrew text here, actually, we need to understand, lacks the word place. That word place is not in the original Hebrew text. It is supplied by several English versions, like the ESV that we use here for preaching. The translation committees supply that word place for understandable reasons that I won't get into here for the sake of time. But the original text just says, to anoint the most holy. And indeed, this is the way the King James Version has translated the phrase, to anoint the most holy. They leave the word place out. Well, friends, what was the most holy? The most holy was the innermost chamber of the tabernacle, and later the temple, also called the Holy of Holies. This is the place where God dwelt, yes, between the cherubim that were on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the most holy. Now, so far in this list of six actions that were to happen during the 70 weeks, we've suggested and we've implied that each of them can be connected easily to the first coming of Jesus Christ, to the first advent of Jesus Christ. And I think the same is the case here. When Jesus came the first time, and we need, to, we need to read our New Testament, when Jesus came the first time, the Apostle John said in John 1.14 that Jesus did what? Literally in the Greek, tabernacled among us, and we have seen what? His glory. Jesus was God, literally tabernacling, dwelling, moving around with his people. And in the old covenant, where God's glory featured in the most holy place, in the holy of holies of the tabernacle and later temple, now, in the new covenant era and with the coming of Jesus Christ, God's glory is located in the tabernacling person of Jesus. And of course, in John chapter 2, we find that Jesus is, in fact, He is the true temple of God. 
It's no longer, friends, any physical building where God's glory is located. It's Jesus where God's glory is located. It's no longer any physical building where people must go to approach God. Jesus, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, is where human beings approach God. And in the Old Covenant, where we had a high priest, remember, we had a high priest offering repeated sacrifices, right, in the physical Jerusalem temple. Now, in the New Covenant, Jesus is both everlasting high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and he is the acceptable, never-to-be-repeated sacrifice himself. In summary terms, Jesus is the most holy place or the most holy one. And God anointed him. God anointed him to use the term of Daniel 9.24. Acts 10, verse 38 says in very clear terms, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So when the angel Gabriel talks here in Daniel 9.24 about a most holy being anointed, It is a prophecy, hundreds of years before its fulfillment, it's a prophecy of the anointing of Jesus. Most likely, this is a prophecy of what happened at his baptism, when what happened? The Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus and came to rest on him. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. And that's as far as we will go in our text This morning, we're going to save the last three verses of Daniel 9. Bit of a roller coaster ride there, (laughs) but we'll save those for next week. For now, I want to return as we wind things up here to the fact that 70 weeks in Daniel 9.24 is a direct echo of the Sabbath and Jubilee principles that had been given much earlier in Leviticus chapter 25. This morning we noted that the 77s that the angel Gabriel talks about in 924 give us a total of 490 years. And that number 490, we noted, bears a direct relationship with the 49 years that were to elapse before each Jubilee year as stated in Leviticus 25, so that Gabriel's 490 years here in Daniel 9.24 is exactly 10 Jubilee periods, 10 Jubilee eras. Now next Sunday, we will see that the final 
the last portion of the 70 weeks is particularly packed with action, both redemptive action and destructive action. In other words, the 70 weeks ends, we need to understand this morning, it ends with a climactic, crowning, consummate 70th week. The final jubilee of the 10 jubilee periods in the 490 years is particularly breathtaking. It features unparalleled, redemptive, restorative action, just as a jubilee should. And we've argued here this morning that Daniel's 70 weeks is largely focused, I'm arguing, largely focused on the first coming of Jesus. This is a prophecy spoken by the angel Gabriel hundreds of years before Jesus that described the anointing of Jesus and the fact that he would fulfill the old covenant. It talked also about his atoning sacrifice on the cross. It talked about the righteousness that he would bring. Jesus, my friends, would come to end, aren't you thankful this morning, to end that second stage of the exile of God's people. Jesus would come to atone for iniquities, to restore God's people to a right relationship with God. Now, we're going to wrap this up. The prophet Isaiah wrote to an exiled people. Exiled in Babylon. Isaiah spoke into the situation of exile. And Isaiah prophesied the restoration and the redemption of God's people, the payment of their debts. In other words, Isaiah prophesied what? He prophesied the consummate, climactic jubilee. And part of Isaiah's jubilee prophecy, of course, is Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Near the beginning of his earthly ministry, Jesus stood up in the Nazareth synagogue. And not by accident, he read Isaiah 61 aloud to the people. He unrolled the scroll in the synagogue and he read these words from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Daniel 9. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Blessed Jesus. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Were you once a captive? Liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Isn't this good news? Jubilee news. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus said to the people gathered there in Nazareth, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying, <laughs> he was saying, I am the one 
upon whom God's Spirit rests. I am the one whom God has anointed to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. Jesus was saying, I am the one who recovers sight for the blind and who sets at liberty those who are oppressed. I am the one who proclaims the year of the Lord's favor, the jubilee year. It's now here, Jesus is saying. It is week 70. It's the final, climactic, consummate, crowning week of the 70 weeks that Gabriel prophesied hundreds of years ago in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. Jesus is saying, I have come to end the second stage of exile, to end the 490-year period of the exile. And how did Jesus do that? He did that by being nailed to the cross in the 70th week as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the atoning sacrifice who was prophesied all those years ago by the angel Gabriel. My friends, you and I, we are set free from our bondage, bondage, our shackles, to sin, death, and the devil. We are set free and put right by God, with God by the jubilary, liberating, redemptive work of Jesus Christ and His cross and resurrection. And I'm here to tell you the good news that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Acts 2.21, saved from what? Saved from sin? Saved from the wrath of God that is to come? Saved from eternal death. And there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4, verse 12. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Acts 16, 31. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. So my friend, this morning I leave you with this. Come to Jesus in your sackcloth and in your ashes. Come to the risen Christ in repentance and sorrow over your sin before Him and be saved by His grace today and receive eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, it is not, it's not too much to say that Your Word blows us away. It blows our spirits and our minds away. It is so rich and full and good, living and active. Lord, we thank You for this Word. We thank You for Daniel. 
We thank you for his humility, for his confession. We thank you for Gabriel arriving swiftly and giving this prophecy. But most of all, Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who went to the cross on our behalf in our place as our substitute to die for sins that we had committed, that he had never committed. He stood in for us in our place so that we could be forgiven and made right with God and be brought back into blessed relationship with the one who made us. Lord, you are so great and so good, and we give you thanks and praise. We adore you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.